We are Bar Crawl Radio, a podcast in which Alan Winson and I, Rebecca McCain, have interesting conversations with people who do important work. We are recording at Gephardt's Beer Culture Bar on West 72nd Street, across the street from the mortuary, right over there, and several dozen blocks from the United Nations, where the world seldom settles the really big problems of our time. And today, we'll be talking with two American historians about the idea America that is taught to our children. And with that bit of an introduction, here we go. James Baldwin argued that unlike Europeans, Americans do not know who they are. In Stranger in Paris, Baldwin argued that the French know who they are, ethnically, historically, but Americans are confused. He writes that we know one when we see one, but cannot name what we have in common. The idea of America is formed in our pre-college American history classes. But as Joseph Moreau argues, writing history is always political, always reflects the relationships of power in the society. Today, we will be talking with American historian Joseph Moreau, author of School Book Nation, an investigation of how American history has been taught to our children. Joseph Moreau is a history instructor at the Abraham Joshua Heschel High School in Manhattan. He holds a PhD in American culture from the University of Michigan and was recently nominated for the Most Amusing Teacher Award. And with us is historian Robert Snyder, Professor Emeritus of American Studies and Journalism at Rutgers University in Newark. Robert Snyder conducted the research for Rick Burns' documentary, New York. His books include Crossing Broadway, Washington Heights, and The Promise of New York. And he co-authored All the Nations Under Heaven, Immigrants, Migrants, and the Making of New York. And Rob is presently Manhattan's official historian. Yeah, and thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, 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 yeah. Rob, what are the duties of the Manhattan historian? The job is really open-ended. A variety of historians have held it before me. It's mandated under state law. Every municipality or county has one. So I've defined my term as Manhattan Borough Historian as the job of building vigorous bridges between professional historians and community historians and the general public who are interested in sharing knowledge of our borough and our city's past. So we could do a whole program on the history of New York City. We could. Or Manhattan, then. That would be great. It would be a lot of fun. Right, 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 right. Joe, when you um, started on this exhaustive examination of the history of American history textbooks, what got you started? Um, <clears throat> I had started a graduate program at the University of Michigan, um, and I needed to have... Um, a dissertation project. Um, I was drawn to studies of propaganda and that led by course to looking at textbooks which I've always found kind of fascinating and I thought well uh, no one has done the kind of research I envisioned by reading all the textbooks uh, so that struck me as a project I could do and, and get my PhD. Right, right. And how many textbooks would you say American history textbooks did you look through? 
in your study? It's a little bit hard to say exactly because many of the books went through so many editions, and the first edition was very much unlike the give the high number the last one probably about a hundred, yeah, um, or a little bit over depending on how many editions we look at. Right, and this study that you did of American history textbooks goes back. Uh, previous to the Civil War, uh, mm-hmm. so the time period is Civil War, pure post, until 2000, whatever. The earliest ones I read were from the 1830s, and I stopped most of my research into the 1980s. There were so many books to look at, and I was running out of time, and that's kind of where I wanted to end the narrative. Right, um, and I think we should say that uh, School Book Nation was published last, I believe, in 2006. Mm-hmm. So there a lot happened between then. I'd like to get to that maybe when we get to the end of our conversation. Um, how many years did it take to do this study? Um, start to finish about 10. Of course, I was doing other things at that, the time. That sounds about I was right. teaching, um, but uh, start to finish about 10 years. All right. All right. right. So, okay. So here's this, the, the, the easy question I have for you guys. Uh, what has been and continues to be the purpose of teaching American history for, to, our, to our children? There are a lot of different ways to answer that question. That's not being evasive. Um, I think there is definitely a question of building skills, of critical analysis skills that you can gain through um, particularly looking at primary sources backed up by textbooks. Um, there is an argument, and I think it's a good one, for having a common um, I don't want to say set of facts because that makes it too uh, narrow, but some common cultural understanding of whatever body you are in, whether it is the nation or the West or uh, humanity in general, that there's a usefulness in having a common core of facts and ideas from which you can speak the same language, even if you have very different positions on politics. Right. And, and, and Rob, you teach or have taught at the college level. What is the purpose of teaching history at the college level? Is it the same? I'd say it's something very, very similar. And I think it's important to recognize that different people would answer that question differently, right? So even at the college level, there's tremendous pressure on professors today to teach a version of American history which is sort of grand, uh, which is not at all critical or analytical in any way, which in many ways would turn the clock back on a lot of the ways people have been writing and teaching history for the last 50 or 60 years. So you're going to get different answers to that question. My own answer would be very similar similar to Joseph's. And I often think that you teach history in order to help people locate themselves in time, to think historically, to think about how the past influences their present and influences the opportunities they have to act or not act in the present time. But we are not talking about teaching um, um, college students history. We're talking about mainly pre-college classrooms, which is what Schoolbook Nation is, is dealing with. Now, I'm going to make a very kind of maybe simplistic statement, and you push back on it. Telling any country's history requires making choices, clearly. Each choice arises from the writer or the teacher's bias of what they th- you think is important. So is teaching American history, it's a selling of a version of America. And I think you were getting to that, Joe. Mm-hmm. Um, as a teacher, even if I try to remove bias, of course I have my own views, and they're going to color what I do in the classroom. Though, I mean, my priority is to open up a space where different views can be articulated within certain limits. 
Um, I'm not sure if that's answering your question. I mean, so, so we're, we're talking here about how history, American history, is taught uh, from a particular perspective in all cases, even though you try to bring in other things. Now, it wasn't always done that way. You open your book, uh, Joe, School Book Nation, uh, with Lynn Cheney, uh, mother of Liz, wife of Dick, who headed up an attempt in the 1990s to establish standards uh, where there would be a single, uh, this is the way I was understood it, a single approach to teaching American history. This came up in the, in the, uh, in the Bush era. Um, did that effort work out to come up with a standard to teach American history? It's been a while since I looked back at the standards, but from my memory of what happened, they weren't as political as they had been spun in a lot of the press. They were a common core of skills and basic episodes in American history that one should understand, um, but they became a target um, for critics, particularly on the right, who looked at the list and said, well, I don't see this here, or I see too much of this here and not enough of that, and uh, the, the creators of the standards are trying to indoctrinate children. Um, that was, as I remember it, how it was often played out in the press. But from my memory and from looking at the standards, they were relatively benign and middle of the road. Yeah, my, among my friends, I had colleagues who attacked the standards as being too moderate, maybe even too conservative, right? And, and I think that's a testament to, to, to Joseph's analysis. They were fairly middle of the road. Um, and I think that's important to remember when you think about the debate around them. I think certain political actors had an interest in, in hyping or exaggerating what they were doing in the standards. But well, isn't that the story? Go ahead, go ahead. Well, you said that they were, they were attacked by the right. Yeah. And these are, are liberal friends that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And so that is pretty middle, then, if it's uh, being attacked by both sides. But that's the story of telling the history of America, isn't it? It's like you've got these sides that say, we want this story told. No, we want this story told. And depending on who's in power, you're going to get a different emphasis on what is America and where, what we arise from. I don't think it just depends on who's in power. I really think that the world of writing history is broad and varied and there are many actors in it, from professional historians to local historians to, to, to journalists and writers of narrative history. And I think it's very difficult to impose one standard on them, and I don't think that happens depending on who's in power. What I do think happens is every work of history is written from the standpoint of the present when it's written and different generations have different concerns and different questions. And they bring those questions to the past. It's a perfectly reasonable thing to do. I think that rattles some people because history is never about a fixed set of answers. You have to come up to, with new answers in every generation. That's why history keeps being rewritten, not because it's being falsified or responding narrowly to some dictate from on high, but to answer the questions that we ask in our own time. OK, OK. Let, let, let's take, let's take a, a bit of a look uh, going back to the history of, of um, American history teaching. Um, early on, it was not clear how, and this is from your book, Joe, um, how American history book writers should explain the American Revolution and our ongoing relationship with the British. And you have, you have a, a large part about how do we relate to the British. Were we a family having a quarrel and that we're now going to get along? Or are we a unique people that need to pull away from this, you know, this aristocracy which we call Britain? 
uh, and there was, you know, early on, we're, we're now, I, where were we then and where are we now? Uh, of course, that changes a lot over time. Um, in the 19th century, particularly before the Civil War, there was a conscious effort among um, the first generation of American historians, among teachers, among cultural commentators like Noah Webster to create an American identity that was national in character, that would make it distinct from Britain. And there was this fear that actually American culture was just sort of an appendage to Britain, um, but not its own unique thing. So uh, when I look at textbooks from that period, I saw a lot of, um, of very disparaging remarks about Britain, about Britain's conduct in the war, and a clear effort to separate the U.S. from that, which, I mean, in, in some ways has its parallels in creating a dictionary of American English where we drop the U in favor. Um, and so that was clearly, um, as I remember it, a big part of antebellum textbooks. Um, and then we moved to the end of the 19th and the start of the 20th century, and there's more sense of a clear American identity in part created by the experience of the Civil War. Um, and then uh, many historians who are Anglophilic in character um, feel much more comfortable talking about the commonalities between Britain and the U.S. and emphasize them to a point that there is a, a controversy in the 1920s over that very sort of friendliness toward the British. Right, right. And clearly there's a lot more details in the book. I urge people to take a look at it who's interested in this history of American history books. You know, uh, an example of what Joseph's talking about in the way people in the general public understand history is the holiday of evacuation day. It's the day when the British army left New York City at the American Revolution. And for a while in the 19th century, there was a big holiday in New York City. People celebrated the departure of the British. They valorized the American soldiers and sailors who died on British troop ships, anchored off the coast of Brooklyn. They built a huge monument to them. But as the era of World War I comes around, and the United States is allied in Britain, with Britain in that war, it just doesn't look right to be celebrating Evacuation Day. And Evacuation Day is by then a memory, and the old animosity between the U.S. and Britain, that's really set aside. So this history of who we are, told in, in history books, is changing, it's evolving, it's becoming else. Becky has so, another yeah, one. So yeah, so one story of America is that we are basically Anglo-Saxon. Uh, of course, our American is, uh, America is European and white. Um, and this story persists into this age of manga, does it not? Um, I haven't looked at textbooks that much um, published after 1980. Of course, I use them in my own classes. Um, my initial impression would be yes, that to some extent, and certainly in some quarters of America, uh, a sort of Anglo-Saxon, though people would probably not use that name, continues to characterize visions of what the nation legitimately is um, versus people who are not fully American, imagined by some along racial lines. Right, right, right. And Joe, you also found that one group of Anglo-Saxons, some German-Americans, could not identify a thing called America. In, in the February 17, 1890 article of the Buffalo Volksfreund newspaper, quote, declared that there is no nation, no race, and no people like France, Italy, or Germany. We have no national language outside the language the immigrated races speak in their families, end quote. Was this attitude, was it reflected in the textbooks at the end of the 19th century? Um, that's an interesting piece from German-Americans who are advocating a, a sort of 
cultural and national pluralism that became really problematic by the time we hit World War One, and anything said by an avowedly German-American group becomes difficult. Um, are you asking if that is still a, a common view uh, of national I'd be pluralism? interested in that. I mean, this idea of who we are as American. I mean, we, we, have, we have people in our Upper West Side neighborhood, uh, Hasidic uh, Jewish um, population, which pretty much is separated from the rest of us. I mean, I don't see them as part of our neighborhood at all. I mean, they're, they're this, it seems that it's, it's a parallel to what was going on back then. It's like we, we are not necessarily of this part of the city even. We are our own thing. Um, I can look back to the early 20th century and suggest that that was one model of nationalism that allowed people to be full American citizens and still practice um, a, a different cultural, uh, I don't have a great word for it, um, but thinking of the Amish today, can they yes. be both Americans and um, a relatively insular community? And clearly at that point, large numbers of Americans, particularly recent immigrants, or what were called the new immigrants after, uh, after 1880 um, from uh, Southern and Eastern Europe, articulated a nationalism that would allow them to maintain those communities. Um, though these were Germans and generally not of Southern or Eastern European extraction, but they defended their interests in the face of what they saw as Anglo-Saxon Anglo hegemony or attempts to um, uh, impose a certain idea of just who or what culture could fit into the national community. I mean, I would, I would say that your point about white supremacy, white nationalism, a definition of only Anglo-Saxon Americans being real Americans is very much alive in American politics today. But it's not because American history books at the college level have been inculcating that idea across the, you know, the recent decades. That idea was blown up in the 1950s when historians like Oscar Handlin, the children of Jewish immigrants, wrote the history of the United States from the point of immigrants. When John Hope Franklin injected African Americans into the history of the United States, and textbooks that have been written certainly since the 70s are way beyond that. They're not locked into that. It's the popular understanding of history that's completely divorced from what's happening in universities. That's why I made my job as a historian to try to build bridges between universities and the wider world so that knowledge would be out there in the general public. But it's not true that that older Anglo-Saxons only perspective has gone unchallenged. It's been blown up many, many times. I think some people resent that today, and that's why they attack the teaching of history at the college and university level. But I think that's a different question. Okay, so I have another construct, um, that America is a mix of immigrants who have given up their past and are now American. So was, it, was this an idea that was embraced by newcomers? And then the other idea is New York City is seen as a great melting pot or a confluence of immigrants, um, perhaps one of the most diverse cities in the, in the United States, maybe the world. Could this be a lab for you know, what could happen throughout the country? I used to teach workshops for high school history teachers where we would try to get them to teach the history of the United States through the history of New York City. And sometimes it involves starting with local issues and sometimes it involves starting with national issues and bringing them to New York. And I, I think it's a complicated question. I think the first generation of immigrants, Irish, 
Germans in the 19th century and Jews and Italians, you know, in the late 19th and early 20th, found that sometimes the price of admission to American society was a renunciation or a downplaying of certain kinds of cultural particularities. An assimilation. Yeah, but I don't think people assimilated completely. I think what it means to be Italian or Jewish or Irish or German is not static but unchanging and, and formed in hybrids between different ethnic cultures. I grew up in a town where people's idea of a mixed marriage was a marriage between an Italian Catholic and an Irish Catholic. I mean, this was a real scandal for the kids, you know, when they, when they proposed this to their parents. So I think that ethnic hybrids are part of the history of New York City. I think racism is an enduring theme in the history of New York City. This goes back to slavery, slavery times in the 17th and 18th century. But I wouldn't say the terms of racism are unchanging. I wouldn't say the condition of African Americans is unchanging. They confront the persistence of racism, but racism changes over time. A big part of doing history is figuring out change over time. And I think things don't stay the same. They change, and we have to understand how and why. But just the fact that we're all living here now relatively peacefully in this you know, confluence of cultures um, I would think that there's a lesson to be learned there. I think there's a great that the country can learn from the, United, the record of New York City. It's not been perfect. It's, it's had moments of stumbling and staggering. Think of the present moment. Think of the pandemic. Think of the fiscal crisis. But if you had told somebody in 1890 that there would be a Jewish mayor in New York City, if you had told somebody in 1940 that there would be black mayor in New York City, they would, they would have been absolutely astounded at the idea. Right. At the same time, New York City is kind of an island, Manhattan, an island unto itself in this country. I, I don't see this country as, what I'm hearing from our two historians here is that, yes, there is a story and, of America and that it's changing and evolving, but it is a story. It is, there is certain kind of qualities to it that kind of bring, bring it all together. Um, I question that and, and I, I wanted to kind of just keep that on the table. Uh, there's one major aspect of American story that uh, former Confederate states wanted left out of the history books initially and maybe even continues in, in, in some ways. Um, they, didn't, they, you know, they could talk about the old plantation days as being good and nice and, and kind to their, to their, um, to their black brothers. Um, but this story of slavery in the United States is a mixed story. Uh, it was then. Does it continue to be mixed today? Have we faced it today? Well, that's a profound question. Um, have we faced the story of slavery? Um, and with it, I would say the story of race um, and racial oppression. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I'm going to actually go off on a tangent for a second, but I hope it's not a tangent. Um, one of the most important books I ever read um, was by an historian named Edmund Morgan, who looks at Virginia in the 17th century. And he does a lot of different things, but I'll say what I took away from it. He looks at Virginia and says, wow, um, we've got people like Jefferson and Washington and other people who articulated um, uh, American ideals of freedom in the 18th century. How were they able to do that? Um, and then he looks at the 17th century in Virginia and looks at Jamestown and the rest of the century in Virginia and says, well, here's how they were able to do it. Um, they could envision an America where common men could vote, but only by excluding um, 
the enslaved and African Americans by race from that story um, and keeping them in a status that would not be citizenship. And when they could wrap their heads around uh, poorer whites can vote, um, small landowners or perhaps even eventually even a white man who didn't own land could vote. That was for them uh, a step forward, but it inextricably linked ideas of citizenship and race um, in a way that I would suggest now we have not disentangled. Who is truly deserving of full citizenship and rights? If we were in 1690 in Virginia, the answer was pretty, pretty clear for most whites. Um, You're talking about white men. White men, yeah. yeah. With, with land. With, with land, though eventually by the time we get to the 1830s, the land requirements would be removed from um, uh, voting requirements and even uh, the poorest of white males can be brought in there. So, um, and I've used part of Edmund Morgan's material in my classes and I, you know, the question I end with is, have we disentangled race and citizenship, race and freedom fully yet? And I don't say my answer, but my answer is no. Um, no, we haven't done that yet. The categories of race change radically over time. Who is included in whiteness? Um, can Ashkenazi Jews be included? You know, 100 years ago, many people would say, of course, no. Now, yes, and, and even legally. Um, that Irish exists. Catholics. Irish Catholics, uh, yeah, the Irish become white, the title of a famous book, or how the Irish became white. Yeah. Yep. So how much of that is the responsibility of the textbooks that we've had, um, you know, throughout time? We're um, culturing our, our kids. Um, I spent years of my life on textbooks, um, but what I walked away with was less a sense that they had this power to determine how students read them, um, or even how teachers teach with them, as much as they become this powerful focal point because they're um, a marketable commodity that publishers are trying to sell, um, but they're also, um, in a sense, part, they're public property because, yeah, we're paying taxes um, that uh, buy these textbooks. Um, so uh, I tend not to see the textbooks themselves as this big, powerful influencer, and more textbooks are this neat barometer to understand how the rest of the country is fighting over something. And because they come at this nexus of uh, a marketable commodity and a public resource, um, they, they naturally become the focus of these fights. That's why I found writing about them so interesting. And they, they um, leave out very much. They skip over information. There's things that we had, did not hear about when we were young. The Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre, massacres that happened in Florida. Um, so are American publishers, are they um, an important part of the story of America that was formed? Um, and for the most part, are the large publishers, uh, were they interested just in profit? I, I'm hesitant to speak for them um, completely because I've never worked. Well, Rob, you, maybe, were, you, maybe, you right. worked for a publisher at one time. Yeah, when um, I was in grad school, I worked for Random House. We, I, and I worked mostly on college-level history texts. And our, our big job was to total up the number of traits in each textbook in the, in the market we were selling to. So, you know, Random House U.S. history textbooks covered points 1 through 20. You know, another practice hall covered points 1 through 15. 
you know, Norton covered, you know, points one through 18. We wanted to make sure we had everything our competitors have plus a few, right? So we always wanted to, as a selling point, send our sales reps out to say, look, we have everything the other competition public textbooks have plus these five traits. Also, we did a lot of work um, making the textbooks more interesting. They were, they were team efforts. I was brought in once to provide snappy quotes and first person or primary source anecdotes to feed to a ghostwriter who would then massage an esteemed scholar's book to produce a readable textbook because the esteemed scholar didn't produce a very readable textbook on the first draft, but having his name on the cover was going to sell a lot of textbooks. So it's definitely a marketing exercise, right? And it was driven by a very industrial process. And I think one of the challenges in, in, in college today is that the textbooks have become so expensive, I've, I never assigned them to my students because they just cost too much money. I found less expensive ways of getting them to read a book that would be the common narrative of our course, and I think that was fair to their pocketbooks. That sounds like a good answer to this <laughs> textbook issue, but still, the 1 through 20 points, did it still include those stories about massacres of We knew Americans? all about the Tulsa massacre when I was in graduate but school. It was not, it was, here's But did they know about it in high school? From the textbooks? If, if they'd taken a course with me, they would have learned about things like this. But here's the difference, and I want to say this very strongly. Until very recently, I think there was an optimism about the general course of American history that it was tended towards greater democracy and greater conclusion. Clearly, the history textbooks that were written aimed at that. They were about, about building a more perfect America, who built America, all sorts of ideas that America was in the process of becoming something, and you could take a certain modicum of progress for granted. That's gone. We live in a very pessimistic time. And the general assumption, then, is that the most negative reading of American history must be the most correct one. And I think that's mistaken, too. Interesting. Right. And what, what about you, Joe? I mean, do you feel that, I mean, were there certain things published in the South, the, the, the text that would go to the South, or was it, I mean, was, were things left out? In and, and publishers, would they, would, they would go along with what the region wanted. Oh, of course. If we go back to the late 19th century and early 20th century, um, uh, I'm recalling what you were saying about sort of massaging a text. That was already happening. Um, in the South, uh, unlike most of the North and West, uh, texts were adopted more and more often at the state level. So um, there were textbook committees with hearings, public hearings, um, and uh, Confederate veterans and other interest groups, many of them clearly white supremacists, would come in and articulate exactly what they wanted in the textbooks, and publishers would struggle to give them what they wanted in a way that would not offend other buyers, say, in Wisconsin or Massachusetts. And it was a delicate process, and I, I sort of have this odd sympathy for them in trying to massage American history to, say, eliminate the story of African-American troops in the Civil War, um, or trying to tell the story of the Civil War that somehow ignored the role of slavery, which required really interesting historical gymnastics, but they tried, um, and in so doing, told a, you know, a very distorted um, uh, story of what America is. But the, the thing to, say, to note about this is that the people who made this mistake were among the most enlightened and educated people of their time. They didn't do it 
out of ignorance, and I don't even know if they were, you know, mercenary about it. Politically, culturally, they had absorbed certain assumptions about American society, politics, and culture, and its progress that that validated their conclusions. I mean, the Dunning, I mean, the Dunning School in the writing of American history is is saturated with this kind of pro-Confederate racist stuff, right? He was a professor at Columbia. Uh, in every age, people absorb the conventional wisdom of their time, and it shapes their understanding of history, right? And some of these ideas last longer than others, and that's what's so that's what's so naughty and contentious. So that's why we have conflicts again and again. I mean, the fascinating thing about Joseph's book, for me, is that there is no golden age in which there were no conflicts over American history. Conflicts go back all the way. Mm -hmm. That's what's interesting to me. It's not that there was a mythic consensus once in the past, and we've lost it today, which is what some conservatives would have you believe. There's been debate about what should be the American history going all the way back to our founding. And there were attempts all along the way, as you tell in your book, uh, Joe, Schoolbook Nation, to find a way through this so that we could tell, I'm putting quotes around it, the whole story, or tell the story as best we could. You bring up one um, scholar, John Hope Franklin, mm -hmm. um, who was a black scholar, who you seem to see as finding a way through this mix of stories that are contradictory what was his approach? John um, Hope Franklin. Okay. Um, here's my memory of what his book, Land of the Free, was doing. Um, really since the early 19th century, there were more and more pressure to integrate different white ethnics into the story of American history, often because of pressure pushed on publishers in cities here like New York, in Chicago, and elsewhere. And so publishers could craft an American narrative that goes back to the melting pot you mentioned, a melting pot that was white. Um, and in which, okay, the Catholic Irish could be brought in, the Italians could be brought in, um, and uh, uh, prejudice in the past against them could be acknowledged by the native-born community, um, but uh, there was sort of a whiteness that brought everyone together, and we could tell stories where every different ethnic or religious group, as long as they fit into this white um, sort of overgroup, um, could be integrated in, their contributions told, and what John Franklin is doing in response to pressures um, from parents and others in places like Detroit is to, to, to blow a hole in that narrative and say, you know what, you can't just add black people into that narrative as contributors to this American story because their experience is fundamentally dissimilar. They, they didn't come in on the Mayflower or its 20th century um, uh, uh, equivalent coming into New York Harbor. They came in slave ships. Um, their experience was slavery. And you can't tell a story that brings them into that. Um, you have to tell a story that says black people experience something radically different in America. Um, and they can't be subsumed in that narrative. And when he came out with that book, there was this giant blow up of a controversy in California uh, with people led by a guy named Bill Rafferty, um, who basically said, why can't we do that? Why can't we just have black contributors, African-American contributors to the American story? And if we talk about racism, that's just divisive. And, and, and it only leaves children you know, disillusioned with America, which was total nonsense. Um, but it showed the challenge of trying to integrate um, a, 
uh, integrate race fully into the American story, which and I don't think it's been done yet. That same argument is going on right now. Exactly. Yes. So yeah. how do you both teach um, history? Joe, you teach at a Jewish high school. Mm -hmm. Just down a few blocks. Right. Um, how do you approach American history there? It's a liberal Jewish high school. Uh, Would you say? Yeah, it's the Abraham Joshua Heschel School. Right. Uh, I guess we could say its orientation is liberal, though there's a diversity of views um, with it. How you do have I to be careful what you say? Um, I don't think so. Okay. I would be as careful as I would be in any classroom. I would be thoughtful about what I'm teaching. Um, but uh, no, nothing beyond that. So I teach the contradictions of American history, and most of the history of courses that I taught at Rutgers, actually the survey courses that I taught, were really histories of American journalism woven through American history. It was my teaching, my way of teaching the history of journalism, really. It was to make it part of the cultural and political history of the United States. So, you know, by the early 20th century, Objectivity is a stated ideal in American journalism. It's, it's established. It's not universally held to, but it's a stated ideal. And then I would give them accounts of lynchings published in a newspaper like the New York Times, and it's, it's credulous. It's not that they don't cover the lynching. They do. But there's a whole wave of questions that are not asked. And I would show them a similar uh, kind of issue in a, in a, covered by Ida B. Wells, the African-American muckraker and anti-lynching crusader, who, although an activist with a clear point of view about lynching, is far more factual and searching in the account she delivers than the New York Times. What does this suggest about the two publications, the two reporters that render the accounts, how might they might understand these issues in, the, in their time and going forward? I would teach um, the notion that American journalists like to think of themselves as a strong check on abuses of executive power, but then we would look at the Tonkin Gulf Resolution in the Vietnam War, and you would see how, you know, President Johnson bamboozled people into a vigorous U.S. entry into the Vietnam War without many tough questions from the press. So that's the way I would do it, um, and and I'd still do it today. By doing that, I think you force students to think critically about the past and present and come up with their own answers, and I can keep my own perspective sufficiently muted that they give their own answers without trying to work too hard to figure out what I think. And I tell people this at the beginning of every semester. I don't really want you to waste a lot of time on what I think. I want you to come up with answers for yourself. And I was really pleased at the end of the semester once, teaching really contentious issues, you know, recent American political history and journalism, and a student came up to me after and said, so now, now that the semester is over, would you tell me, what do you really you, think? You really and mean? I felt very good about that. I felt very, very good about that. I still do. I, I, so I, I've had a few students who do something, and I have that similar sense of, oh, good, my politics aren't particularly overt. And you would ask, like, how do I teach history? Um, I use a textbook, or actually two textbooks, because um, we do a European and American history combined um, at Heschel. I teach primarily with primary sources, and those allow us to at least make an effort to get into the minds of people at the time. And it requires a lot of work. You've got to like explain terms that they're using and the framework in which they're using them. But those are the most useful way to get in. Um, I use textbooks. But they're pretty dry. I mean, I've read a lot of them. I know more than anyone else just how dry they are. The primary sources are fascinating, though. At, yeah, at, the, at the end of your, your book, you, and this is in 2006, before we've been through the last two decades, um, 
that possibly the internet would be a way open towards a more free investigation of history, that it opens up other ideas. Uh, of course, the internet in 2006 is not the internet now. Uh, do you still use um, the web, the World Wide Web, to, um, to send students to get the story of American history? Sure. Um, my 11th grade and um, 10th grade students do research projects, and they need to use the web. So part of what I have to teach is how do you evaluate the accuracy of certain sources? What do you look for? What should you be nervous about using? Because, of course, there's the danger of the web. You can go down a conspiratorial rabbit hole fairly quickly. Um, and that's a challenge for students. In a, it's a kind of challenge that I faced very differently when I was a high school student in the 1980s. There were so many gatekeepers, or there were just enough gatekeepers, who determined, hey, what books you read at the library, what documentary you watched on PBS. Um, and now it's, it's, it's wide open. I think the web can be very, very useful, but they need, students need to be able to do critical analysis of the sources and what they think is legitimate and what is legitimate. Rob, you're, you're shaking your head. No, completely. Yes. I mean, it, it, it's a challenge. I mean, on one hand, it, it's it gives people access to information, knowledge, and primary sources that's just extraordinary. And yet, I'm haunted by two experiences in my classroom. A student raised his hand one day and said, can I ask a really crazy question? I said, go right ahead. And he said, um, did a plane really crash into the Pentagon on September 11th, 2001? I saw something on the internet that said this did not happen. And I explained to him with multiple level of sources, concluding with my cousin, my friend whose cousin was killed in the Pentagon when the plane hit, that this was legit. One of my best students once um, asked me if I thought there was anything to Pizzagate. And I thought she was referring to a New York Times story about how a ring of pizza parlors were cover for a heroin ring. She goes, oh no, these democratic pedophiles, no, this is, this is a fraud, this is not true, this is simply not true. But she was a single mom taking my classes who put her daughter in daycare, it was terrified that something bad would happen to her daughter in daycare. And so she was quite receptive to the whole Pizzagate in its modern version. And I assured her this was, there's nothing to this. All right, but you just talked to one person. This is a very dangerous aspect of the story we're telling about who we are which we're getting through TikTok and Twitter and all these, you know, Facebook. Um, it, it must make the job of actually creating a, a single idea of America or of unified or something that says this is who we are that has some truth to it, that's not just made up of fake news. I don't think we need a single or a unified idea. I think we need a capacious idea that many people can find themselves in and debate about. You know, you know a really great historian named Warren Sussman once said this, you know cultures, you know countries by what they argue over. I think that's profoundly important. So I teach the argument and I let the students find their way to the conclusion. And I think I have sufficient trust in them that they're intelligent people, that they'll find their own conclusions, and if they follow the terms of my course, they'll actually support those conclusions with evidence. If they don't, they're not going to do well on the course. If they do, they're going to do well on the course. I wish you could teach all Americans to take your course. Yeah, right? That would be, that'd be sweet. Joe, you quote historian William McNeil, who in the mid-1980s touched on where the nation of the people is now. Quote, a people without a full quiver of relevant, agreed-upon statements accepted 
in advance through education soon finds itself in deep trouble, for in the absence of believable myths, coherent public action becomes very difficult to improvise or sustain, end quote. What do you think about that now? Um, I am equally suspicious of saying there's a single narrative that we're going to teach, and yet um, politics does require some common framework and uh, language that we can use to be able to bring enough people together to, uh, I don't know, pass the New Deal or to take any, or I'm thinking of contemporary, to tackle climate change. Um, so there's this tension between this ideal of uniformity and that we must impress into young people's minds certain convictions and ideas, and then we will be a community that can work effectively. Um, there's a tension between that and uh, encouraging um, uh, real analytical thinking that allows you to question those myths. But I go back to what you said, and it, I wasn't even familiar with that line from the historian, but it's, it's an idea that um, governs my teaching. If there's a controversy that keeps happening over and over again in American history, whether it's about race or whether it's about the proper size of government, that means it's an essential question that helps determine who we are as Americans, no matter where we fall on it. If we're all fighting over it, you know, should we have a welfare state or not, then it's worth looking at. I tend to think that we, that that is part of who we are, a nation that fights, that, that all these different cultures have come together and we are struggling. A colleague of mine um, at Rutgers went and did a Fulbright in Canada. And what she wanted to study was citizenship orientation classes in the U.S. and citizenship orientation classes in Canada. The difference was huge. In America, it's like, get ready to fight. Get in there to fight. You're going to have to fight, fight, fight for everything you want. You've got to fight, 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 and find the people you'll fight with. In Canada, it's about learning to appreciate the common good, learning to work together. Canada's as plural as the United States. It's, it's got a lot of immigrants. It's embraced immigration far more than the United States. But the difference really struck her. And here's what pained me. I did a video seminar with U.S. and Canadian students once, and two things fascinated me. I asked the students, are you optimistic or pessimistic about the future of your country? Only one student in my class of 30 in the U.S. said she was optimistic about the future of the United States. All the Canadians were optimistic about Canada's future. That, that really rattled me a lot. And then after the whole thing was over, one of my students said, you know, it just seems like Canadians trust each other more than Americans. But I know they have problems with racism there they as do. well. They do. So, I mean, it's they not... Do. All right, but is there, is there any hope in that pessimism? Is there any positive way of seeing it in that that's what makes us unique? in the world, this island over here in the middle, you know, between the Pacific and the Atlantic, separated from Europe and China and all. Are we an experiment? Are we an still? experiment in how humans might be able to get along? It's an on, and it's an ongoing experiment whose terms are never entirely settled. I think no. what we confront today in the United States politically, and that shapes the way we think about our history, is the most recent eruption of a long-term project undertaken by conservatives going back to the middle of the 20th century to overturn the New Deal and all its works in the Great Society. And they would do that in two ways. They would extol 
the private sector over the public sector to the fullest extent possible. And then second, they would do everything they could to drive a wedge between black and white Americans. This was Pat Buchanan's formula in the Nixon White House in the 1960s. We will rip the country in, part, in half and pick up the bigger part. Because American elites since the 19th century, and even in the 18th century, have been terrified at the thought of a unification of black and white people with economic interests against those at the top. They've done everything they can to block that. White workers have done plenty <laughs> to help them in that project. I don't want to deny that. But the economic populism that conservatives resist and channel into cultural realms, I think, is one of the biggest issues of our time. And it shapes the way we think about our politics in the present, but it also shapes the way we think about our history in the past. If it was a done deal from the 18th century on that required no reinforcement, it would be another story. But they've worked really hard at it. Murray Kempton, a great journalist, said, the situation of black and white workers is the cheated and the worst cheated. Black, black workers are worse cheated, but white workers are cheated too. The boys wrote about this. White workers can embrace both a psychological wage and a material wage from feeling better about blacks. But in a country where median wages have been going down since the 1970s and a lot of people stall are stalled out, that resentment is powerful. And what conservatives have done expertly in America is channel that into cultural realms that I think are really toxic and damaging in the long run. They've fostered and heightened divisions that already existed and made them more damaging. And that then is what is the, is the very shifting and dangerous platform from which we all stand when we, when we contemplate our history. And if I could jump in. Uh, Edmund Morgan, the story yeah, I mentioned sure. earlier, he's seeing that pattern already by the 1640s where um, plantation owners in Virginia are doing as much as they can, either intentionally or even subconsciously, to separate white indentured workers on their plantations and the first generation of enslaved Afri African Americans who often aren't enslaved for life. They're indentured servants for 10, 20 years, um, and that that split is already proving useful for the plantation owners, whether they conceive it clearly as this plan, which they probably don't, and more that it's systemically built into the labor system in Virginia, and in a lot of ways, I mean, from what you're saying, that has evolved, but still characterizes a lot of um, American history and contemporary politics. So looking back on American history and where we are now, are we a story that is going to continue and continue to fight and evolve? Are we going to repeat the same problems we've had since the Civil War and before, the American Revolution? Are we a people that's changed? Um, are we going to learn from our excesses and our disagreements? Or are we just going to be eventually, just like any democracy and nation, we're going to just fall into the ocean? And I would like to add, <laughs> the end of that, <laughs> or the Are ocean you, is going to rise up. The ocean's well, going to rise. That's a whole other podcast. Yes, that's exactly. something else. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to add: Are you optimistic or pessimistic? <laughs> oh, I'm going to leave. I'm going to speak, and that way Joseph is going to have to wrap it all up <laughs> because he wrote the guy who wrote this very good book. Um, um, I stick with an idea from Gramsci: pessimism of the mind, optimism of the will. I still believe that. I, I am very pessimistic about the state of the United States of America today. I think the pandemic has revealed weaknesses which are intolerable, that are obscene, a lack of solidarity, a lack of fellow feeling for our fellow Americans, a, refusable, a refusal to be inconvenienced in the smallest way 
wear a mask that might protect your neighbor from getting sick. This is really, really bad. And it doesn't come out of the blue. It reflects evolution of our politics and our culture and electoral politics in particular in recent years. So I don't any think any of these problems are going away anytime soon because they've been a long time building. However, I can look back on a time when the governing logic of American politics was very different. The assumptions of where America was headed were very different. And history is about change, and I think things will change. When they'll change from the current moment, I don't know, but I'm sure they're going to change in the future. Um, I guess I'd answer that in part thinking about my experience as a teacher. Uh, if we worry about America collapsing now, then we're imagining a time when America wasn't collapsing. Um, and when was that exactly? Um, you know, if you, the 1890s, Jim Crow is fastened onto the South. Um, if you're African-American watching that happen around you, um, this is the end, or this is the collapse of a short-term, couple of decades old promise of racial equality in America. Um, if we think of international realms, if we look at 1939, what looks darker? Um, fascism in Europe and the rise of Hitler and the start of World War II. Um, to give in to pessimism is too easy, um, and it doesn't give us anything productive to do. Um, so no, I'm, I'm hopeful. I, I like New York. I like America. It's, it's really the only place I know intimately. Um, and uh, yeah, I have to believe it will continue, even if that's simply an act of will. Um, yeah. Yeah, agreed. I think it depends on when you're born. The world collapsed for me during Watergate, so that was like my period of, so of reckoning. Really interesting because for me, Watergate confirmed everything my parents had told me about Richard Nixon <laughs> since I was in kindergarten, and it confirmed me in my desire to become a journalist. And then I became a journalist, and then a historian, and then a teacher of American studies and journalism. Well, and I for was me, woke the, then, that's the, the the world collapsed when uh, when Khrushchev was bringing bombs into Cuba. And I was living in Miami. The world was collapsing. Was it was it. taking apart. We're done. So I think we've 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 come to a conclusion here that I'm hearing like is that it. the story of America is a story of collapse and rise and collapse and rise and and where that ends we don't know. But and progress and progress and degress. We are Barkrawl Radio, and I've been talking with American history scholars and teachers, Joseph Moreau, author of School Book Nation, and Robert Snyder, our official Manhattan historian. <laughs> if you have any questions about our podcast, we would love to hear from you. Just email Rebecca or me, Alan, at barkrawlradio at gmail.com. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you very much. Great. Thank yeah, you. great conversation. I thought that was very dynamic. I thought it was good. It was fun. I enjoyed it. It got me thinking about